I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. The Gospel, according to Matthew, chapter 22, starting today in verse 23, which is where we left off last Sunday. Matthew 22 is crucial week for Jesus. On Sunday, he rode into town on a donkey, which signaled both his kingship and his humility at the same time. On Monday, he tossed the tables in the temple, protesting the profiteering going on in his father's house instead of the praying. Here on Tuesday, he's been tussling with the Jewish religious leaders. They've been trying to stump him and stop him. They're doing whatever they can. They're asking by what authority he is doing these things. And he answered their their question with a question of his own, which, you know, he answered their stumper with a stumper so that they didn't want to answer. And then he told three parables that made it clear that he's doing all of this on the authority of who he is as the Son of God. But they haven't, tried, they haven't stopped trying to stump him and stop him. They asked him, we looked at this last week, if it was right to pay taxes to Caesar. They were trying to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. But Jesus doesn't mind hard places. He just keeps on going when it gets hard. And he answers, again, their question with a question of his own. Whose image is on that coin? So give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And we had to ask the question, whose image is stamped on us? Give to God what is God's. I want to title this week's sermon, Acing the Test. Because that's what Jesus is doing, isn't it? They're throwing every test question at him that they can possibly throw at him, and he is just acing it left and right and center. Every question they come at him with, he answers, often with a bigger and better question. Jesus is acing the test. And as it turns out, he is giving a test right back, as he does. Last week, the question came from the Pharisees and what other group? You remember? The Herodians, right? An unlikely combination. But politics makes strange bedfellows. Neither the Pharisees nor the Herodians wanted Jesus to be their Lord. So the next question is going to come from yet another group. One we've heard about already in the Gospel of Matthew. We heard about them in chapter 3. We heard about them in chapter 16. It is the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group within the ruling class of Israel that had a distinct set of beliefs. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch or the Torah. What are those? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. That's their Bible. Stops right there. They didn't accept the rest of the Old Testament as inspired and authoritative for them that day. They also didn't believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. Verse 23. Look at verse 23 really quickly. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. The Sadducees did not believe that there was going to be a resurrection from the dead. And so as the saying goes, they were very sad, you see. Yes, you've heard that one before. Actually, they weren't very sad in general. Not earthly speaking. These folks were rich and prosperous and successful and powerful. And so they were often very earthly happy. But they scoffed at the idea of the resurrection. 
In fact, they thought that anyone who believed in the resurrection was ridiculous. They said that the resurrection wasn't taught in the Torah, and therefore it didn't exist. And they went further than that. They actually didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. They thought that when you die, that was it. Those were the Sadducees. And it's their turn on this Tuesday of crucial week to take a swipe at Jesus. They come up to Jesus to play stump the chump. They want Jesus to be laughed at and mocked and discredited. And so they bring their best game, their best stumper of a question. This is a question, by the way, that has always worked for them so far. Like this is the one they get out at parties, right? And it always gets a great response. They've used it to stump the Pharisees before. The Pharisees and the Sadducees often did not get along. They had to work together because they were both in the kind of the ruling group. Sadducees were more powerful. Pharisees were larger. Okay? I mean, not larger, but larger. Like they had, there was a bunch more of them. Okay? And the Sadducees often picked on the Pharisees with stumper questions like this. And they think that they've got the silver bullet to take down Jesus. Let's read the question. And then we'll pray before we see how Jesus answers. Verse 24. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? There's the test. Now, we already know that Jesus is going to ace it. How will he do it? Let's pray together and then find out. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for everything we've said and sung this morning. For the promises made by the Moslaks to you and to Rhett. For the promises we've said we believe and stand on. For our recognizing Jesus as the one crowned as King forever. We long for the day when we see that. We know it's true. And yet it's still contested. Yet the battle rages. We know the war is over. We know the war is actually won. And we're just in the middle of the massive cleanup operation. But we long for the day when it's peace everywhere we look. One bright, shiny, eternal day. No sickness, sorrow, pain, or death. They're banished far away. Or we long for that day. But to see it, There'll have to be a resurrection. I pray, Father, you would help us to see, hear how it could be. We pray this in the name of the one crowned forever, of the one acing this test, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever had anyone scoff at what you believe? Have you ever had someone treat your beliefs as redonkulous, as absurd? It can really make you feel bad. 
They can make you feel like there's something wrong with you. That maybe you're missing out on what everyone else seems to know. Maybe it's your view of creation. Maybe it's your understanding of marriage. Or maybe it's even more basic, just that you believe the Bible. Has someone scoffed at you as ridiculous for believing that stuff? Do you really believe everything in that book? Don't you know that it was written a long time ago? Don't you know that science has disproved a lot of it? Don't you really believe that all that sin stuff, you believe in all that sin stuff and miracle stuff? That's why a lot of us in this church are reading Confronting Christianity right now. Because the questions that people are asking out in the culture these days presuppose that Christianity isn't just false or misguided, but harmful. And that there must be something wrong with you if you believe in it. Do you believe there's a God who made everything? Well, then who made God? As if that question was really a stumper. Have you ever been tempted to disbelieve what you believe because of a scoffer? How about the resurrection? Do you believe that there is a resurrection to come? Do you believe that one day those who have died will come back to life? Do you believe that? The Sadducees did not. They couldn't get there. They could not go there. They thought they had a stumper of a question to prove it. To make it seem as ridiculous as it clearly was to them. Look at their test case again in verse 23. Teacher, they said, Moses told us in Deuteronomy 25, it's in the Torah, that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now that's very foreign to us, but it's right there in the Bible. It's called Liberite marriage. And it was part of the Torah. It was part of the law. The point was to preserve the family name. Now they ask a test question, a hypothetical. This is one of those word problems in your math class, right? That always are a stumper. Not for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. There's the Levite marriage. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Second dies, third, third dies, fourth. You get the point, till seven, okay? I think they pick seven because it's a perfect number because they're saying this is perfectly absurd, right? I don't think it was a real situation. It was this hypothetical. See if this makes any sense. Occam's razor. You say, what a sad thing for that woman to have lost seven husbands. I say, what a scary thing to have to marry that woman. (laughs) How come all these husbands are dying? Then finally the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, and I think the emphasis is there, there's like scorn just dripping from their mouths when they say, at this resurrection that you keep talking about, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Do you see the question? Do you see how they think that this hypothetical test question has proven beyond a shadow of doubt that there is no resurrection? Resurrection is ridiculous. You just die and turn to dust and that's it. The end. Fini. Resurrection is absurd. I mean, either there is no resurrection or in the resurrection, 
there'll be rampant polygamy and confusion. How are you going to sort all this out? Now, this resurrection is ridiculous. So how would you answer them? Like if you had to take this test, would you even answer them? Would you be tempted to give up on the resurrection? Well, I guess when you put it that way, I don't know. It does kind of sound far-fetched. Maybe you would say from the rest of the Old Testament, well, the resurrection is taught there, like Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Or maybe you'd just say, I don't care what you think, and walk away. Or you'd be silenced and not know what to say to them. How would you answer this test? How do you answer people and think about things when what you believe is under attack as ridiculous? We need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us. Well, our Lord Jesus was not intimidated by the Sadducees in the slightest. In fact, in acing this test, Jesus basically says, that's a dumb question. You've heard there are no dumb questions. Well, Jesus begs to differ. He says, that's a dumb one. You don't even know what you're talking about. Look at verse 29. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Man, how would you like to hear that from the Lord? I know I wouldn't. In fact, let's make that our first application point this morning. Let's do the opposite of these Sadducees. Know the Scriptures and the power of God. Jesus says this is where they had gone wrong and we don't want to follow them. Do you know the Scriptures? I'm amazed at people who say they want to be Christians but are happy to be ignorant about what the Bible actually says. We believe that this is God's Word. That's why we have Sunday school classes and family Bible night. We had a great first night at family Bible night on Wednesday, by the way. We were missing, however, a bunch of kids. We want all the kids. If you've got kids, we want them here. Preschool, elementary, youth, adults too. That's why the adults study the Bible. Joel Michaels is going to lead a study this fall on the attributes of God at prayer meeting. What is God really like? It's in, it's in here. That's why we have link groups and why there is Bible at link groups. That's why we encourage everyone to own a Bible and read their Bibles. Because Jesus says we need to know the Scriptures and the power of God. Have you been in your Bibles this week? Do you know what it says? Are you memorizing 1 John 5, 11, 12, and 13 for our hide the word? Into your heart. No wonder we're weak when people call us ridiculous if we don't know our own Scriptures. God's Word to us. If you don't know where to start in your Bible, talk to me after church. I'll get you started. The fact is that their Bibles taught the resurrection. We mentioned Daniel 12, but it's in Job, it's in Isaiah, it's in the Psalms too. And Jesus says it's implied in the Torah as well. You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Jesus says something's absurd around here. But I don't think it's the resurrection. I think it's your question. It's your assumptions. It's your test that is absurd. 
God has the power to change everything and to bring back the dead to life. Think about it. They're having a struggle with whether there's a resurrection and they believe Genesis 1, that God made everything that there is. If He can make everything, can't He bring back the dead? Look at verse 30. Jesus says, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. You guys are assuming that nothing is going to change. Things are not going to be just like they are right now. The age to come is going to be different. I just listened yesterday to Jim Panaggio's message from Back to School Sunday. That was good stuff, wasn't it? About this age. If you haven't listened to that, it's on the church website. Go back and listen to Jim's message. This age and the age to come. The age to come is going to be different Because of the power of God. The resurrection is going to come and it's going to change nearly everything. For example, there'll be no more marriage. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Newsflash, there will be no more marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. Everything that marriage is supposed to be now, everything that it's a foretaste of now, will be fulfilled then. And while there will be no more marriage, it will be better than marriage. So don't worry, folks. If you have not yet been married, you will not miss out on a partner for eternity because there are no partners for eternity. And don't worry if you're right now in a bad marriage. The resurrection will be so much better. And don't worry if you have a fantastic marriage. The resurrection will be so much better. And don't scoff at that like the Sadducees did. They couldn't imagine a world without marriage. And certainly couldn't imagine it being better. But that was their problem. No more marriage. Life will be very different in the resurrection because of what? The power of God. Do you believe in the power of God? Do you know the power of God? At the Merritt funeral a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a younger man afterwards and he said, I'm afraid to die. I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm afraid of being dead. And I said to him, I have the exact opposite problem. I don't want to go through dying, but I'm not scared of death. And he said, why not? And I was able to briefly share the gospel with him. That because Jesus died for our sins and then rose again, and then I trust in Him, I don't have to worry about what it will be like when I'm dead. And he said, but just lay in there in the ground. And I said, my body will lay in the ground, but my Bi- the Bible says my soul will go to be with the Lord. And then one day my body will get back up and be united with my spirit and I will be resurrected. I think at the time he thought I was talking about reincarnation. But I was like, no, not as somebody else, but as me, raised and transformed to be like Jesus, a body like his body. I'm not sure he could follow me in that. But that's what Christians believe. It's not absurd if you know the power of God. Do you know the power of God? 
In verse 31, Jesus takes it even further. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you in the Torah? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Know the scriptures. See here, Jesus uses Exodus. That's in the Torah, right? He, he, he has them turn in their Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 and does a little Bible study with them. At the burning bush, what did God say? He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He did not say, listen, he did not say, I was the God of Abraham, right? Was Abraham alive or dead when, when, Jesus, when God was talking to Moses at the burning bush? You know it's a trick question, right? Dead as far as Moses is concerned by hundreds of years. But God says, yep, got my eye on him right now. He's alive. Isaac, yep, I can see him. Jacob, yep, I am his God. He's alive to God. And he's promised to bring the dead back to life, and so they will rise. Abraham will rise. Isaac will rise. Jacob will rise. All of the dead in Christ will rise and live forever because of the power of God. Do you know the power of God? Just yesterday, I listened to Abe Scasel's message from Psalm 40. That was really good. Good job, Abe. He said, we are dependent on a dependable God. We are dependent on a dependable God. So we can trust Him. He's good and He's powerful enough to keep all of His promises. Including the promise of resurrection. Do you need to hear that today? We depend on a dependable God. Know the Scriptures and the power of God. Verse 33, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at His teaching. Jesus has aced the test without even taking it. Now the Pharisees were probably happy that the Sadducees had been put in their place on the resurrection because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. But I'm sure the Pharisees were unhappy that it was Jesus who silenced the Sadducees because they did not want Jesus to be their king. So the Pharisees muster up courage to come at him one more time. Look at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, I'm not sure why they think this will stump Jesus. Maybe they're hoping he'll say something that gets him into trouble with the law. Maybe saying that something in the law was not important. Maybe this was a stumper of a question for them. You know, sometimes I, I lead the ordination councils for our district churches. And sometimes when the candidate is doing really well, we start to ask him questions we don't know the answers to to see if he can help us out, right? This might have been one of those, like, there's 614 commandments in the law. I'll bet you Jesus doesn't know which one's the top one. And everybody argues about it, right? You ask five rabbis a question, you get six answers, right? 
Everybody's got a different take on this. Which one's the most important, Jesus? Well, we know the answer to that one because we've been steeped in this. Right? If I asked you what's the most important, what's the first and greatest commandment, you would answer the way Jesus answered. But it's because you're familiar with Jesus' answer. And in fact, our whole un- Christian understanding of ethics is built on this passage. But I read this week that nobody had ever put this together like this before Jesus. He knew his Bible. And he knew what it said and what it meant and how it all comes together. So he just simply aces the test. Verse 37. He answers this one. He doesn't answer back with a question. He answers the question. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Here's our second point this morning and last. Love your God and love your neighbor. That's point number two. Love your God and love your neighbor. Now that sounds simple, but it's really profound. And the Pharisees hated to hear it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In other words, with everything that's in you. Your heart, your soul, and your mind. Those are not different things. Or they're slightly different things, but they're all basically pointing at the same thing. The inner you and all of you. In other words, love God with everything within you. Now, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. The Sadducees would have had to accept this one as well, because it was in the Torah. This is the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments summed up. Love the Lord your God. Now notice that little word, your. You notice that word? That's an important little word. We are not called to just love any God, but the God of the Bible. And we're supposed to make Him ours, to belong to Him personally. Is God your God? Personally? And do you love Him? That means, does He come first? Because it's the first and greatest commandment. It's what we are called to do with our lives. Love the Lord, your God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor. Like you love yourself. Do you love yourself? Yeah, you do. Even those who quote-unquote hate themselves do so because they have a twisted form of corrupted self-love. Jesus puts these two together as vitally connected. Love God and love your neighbor. And he says that the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, law and prophets can hang off of these two commands. All of ethics can be boiled down to that irreducible core. Love your God and love your neighbor. It's not easy. It's not always simple. It's not always clear what love is calling us to do in some situations. We need the rest of the Bible to flesh it out for us. But this is the core. Love your God and love your neighbor. How are you doing at that? Where are you falling short? How can you grow? I know I've run out of time, but I will mention one place I think we can grow in our love for our neighbors. And that is how we talk about them online. I see lots of rants. I see lots of complaining. 
I see lots of ridiculing of various people, especially politicians on Facebook. Who is your neighbor? James says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness, like we learned about last week. God's image stamped on us. We're made in God's image. And how we talk about each other shows whether or not we love those who are made in God's image and whether we love the one in whose image we are made. Where do you need to grow? Love your God and love your neighbor. Sounds great until you have to go and do it, right? Especially when your neighbor turns out to be your enemy. What about then? That's when we find out that we need a Savior. We find out that we will never ace this test on our own. We need someone who has aced it already for us and gives us his perfect score. The one who shouldn't have been getting tested and certainly shouldn't have been put on trial and crucified, but was and aced the test and came back from the dead to give us life. We need Jesus. And praise God, we have him.